This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian vs. Economist, Summer Edition. Uh, We'll be back with our usual program on February the 2nd, but today we've got something a little bit different for you. One of the many exciting things Thomas gets up to is that he helps organise a festival in his hometown of Mullumbimby, which is up near Byron Bay. Um, I know what you're thinking, right? Festivals. You get on the pingers and yuck up in a wheelie bin. No, not that kind of festival. Uh, no, this festival, they seem to spend most of their time just sitting around talking about stuff. Yep, seriously, just sitting around talking about stuff. Well, today's ep is the first part of a panel discussion that Thomas hosted on the question of, is economics fundamentally broken? Uh, I suggested he should host a panel discussion on the topic of, is economics fundamentally boring? Uh, But no, he went with broken. Uh, This is recorded live at RenewFest Mullumbimby. I hope you'll enjoy it. And remember, we'll be back with our usual schedule on February the 2nd. Enjoy. Welcome to a very special episode of Comedian vs. Economist. We're here live at RenewFest in Mullumbimby. Say hello, Mullumbimby. Hello! Oh, lovely. Spontaneous. They didn't practice that. Fantastic. We've got a very special discussion focusing on economics for good. How do we reorganize, rework, renew the global economic paradigm? I've got a very amazing lineup of panelists here. I can't wait to introduce them, so we'll jump right into that. Our first guest is... No stranger to all of you, I'm sure. Helena Norberg-Hodge, she's a pioneer of the worldwide localization movement. She's a recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize, the GOE Peace Prize, director of Local Futures, author of the best-selling Ancient Futures and Local is Our Future. Uh, She's a producer of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. And she's the organizer of World Localization Day, which this year has the goal of encouraging more than 1,000 local food feasts around the world. Please make her welcome, Helena Norberg-Hodge. Our second panelist is Danny Almagor. He is the managing director of Small Giants, a company started with Barry Lieberman to affect social and environmental change through business and Australia's first B Corp. From investments in startups such as Your Grocer, Boreo and Future Super, to larger scale environmental projects such as solar farms, green buildings and regenerative agriculture, the Small Giants total portfolio approach proves that impact investing can span all asset classes and achieve both profit and purpose. He's been recognized with a list of long list of awards, EY Social Entrepreneur of the Year, and the Medal of the Order of Australia. Please welcome Danny Almagorn. (laughs) 
Our next last panelist here is Irfan Daliri. He is a social change author, educator, and consultant with a long and diverse career in community development, management consulting, social change empowerment, education, and advocacy. He is a CEO of Kind Enterprises, director of New Kind Social Justice Conference, refugee campaign advisor for Amnesty International Australia, and program coordinator of the National Unity in Diversity Conference. Please welcome Irfan. Okay, so we've started here with a bit of a CV of achievements. I'm super honoured that people with so many runs on the board have joined us. But I wanted to start by dropping into what drives, what drives you as individuals? What's your mission? I might start with Helena. I know making big stacks of cash is obviously a key driver. But if we go beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, I had this amazing experience of living in an indigenous culture that hadn't been colonized and it hadn't been developed. So it hadn't been integrated into the global economy. I learned to speak the language fluently and I've lived with them over a 40 year period. But already after a year of living with these people, I was passionate about trying to share in the Western world the knowledge that we can live so much richer, happier lives when we live closer to the earth and have deep intergenerational community. Those are the key ingredients that I've been trying to spell out in an economic paradigm called localization. How do we move in that direction? I'm passionate about getting that out because I think we are all suffering from the stress and the time pressures and the feelings of guilt and, and we don't have clarity about the relatively easy path of moving towards localization. Can you, can you just pick up localization there and unpack that if that's new to people? Yeah, thank you. What I realized through living in that culture was that they basically had a walking distance life where mothers and grandmothers could be engaged in political discussions, in economic discussions within easy reach. I discovered that the global economy, which has come to misshape societies around the world, started with force. It started with enclosures and slavery when global traders, and they happen to be white men in Europe, they happen to be racist, misogynist, and anti-nature, but I want to make it very clear that today's white men in the global economy are not at all, I would say, most of them, anti-nature, misogynist, and racist. So I think it's, that's another thing we need to unpack. But this system started with that paradigm, with that worldview. If we go back and look, we'll see that these men, essentially through force, made people move away from more localized, diversified production, where in the region they were producing most of their needs, their food, their clothing, their shelter, within closer distances. And that meant the people who were producing knew the people who were consuming. There was a human scale interaction. There was also a pace of life that we need for wisdom, for love, for compassion, for care. We need to slow down. But we are not seeing the reasons why we're running faster and faster. And that's entirely to do with the needs of global investors, a global economic structure, which has been pushing us in the direction of competition, speed, and distance from the local, distance from nature, distance from our community. 
I hope that makes sense. It's a makes lot sense. more to say. <laughs> Thanks, Elena. Um, seems like a good point to bring you in as a global investor, Danny. <laughs> what's your What's your mission in the world? What's driving you? Um, oh, what's driving me? I think. Um, um, I mean, it's an interesting question of where it comes from and then then where we are now. But um, but I think for now, it's it's really there's that sense of of our inner worlds and our outer world, right? And we've got you know our consciousness and the development of us as humans. Like, what does self-actualization look like? What does you know love of humankind look like? And I think you know whether you go back to you know Jesus, love your neighbor, or or any you know spiritual traditions that try and extend the inner self, extend the concept of, of the self to include all life on earth, I think is an inner journey, right? That I've been on for a long time and still trying to expand my circle of empathy. And then on the outside, it's all about the environment, the situations that we're in that really sort of have such an influence on us. For example, you know, when you're hungry, it's really hard to think straight, you know? Um, so the external environment has a huge influence on us as well or when you know you want to recycle and there's no recycling in town right? so sometimes the inner world can create this mindset but the outer world doesn't allow you to express that mindset and sometimes the outer world can sort of influence the inner mindset so I think for us at Small Giants we, we have a mission called to lead our communities towards empathy in the next economy and for us that really means how do we sort of start redefining our own consciousness, our own place in the world, and then how do we then actualize that so it's not just an idea of inner wisdom, but external action. How do we make sure that the systems are there to support us? And I think for me, that's why we connect so deeply to, to Helena and her work, that whenever we think about those systems that support us to be our best selves, they tend towards this idea of community, this idea of localism, this idea of, of connection. You know, um, and so that's really the driver. The driver is to find that deepest connection, both inner and outer. I wonder if you could unpack impact investing, if that's a, a new term for mm. people, and what's 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 your, in your thought process there as you deploy capital, and as opposed to just an ordinary investor. Yeah, I think what, so. So I started my career. Uh, I was studied engineering, and I worked at something called Engineers Without Borders um, for quite a while, and. Um, and, you know, there we were trying to use technology as a force for good, essentially appropriate technology, not, you know, high, uh, high tech, um, but working, you know, in villages that, that, you know, were struggling with, with water resources and stuff like that. And I think continually as we sort of worked in that space, we realised that, and I think this is where you sort of had such an influence on my life, um, we realised that it's the economy that's creating a lot of these systems, right? So, you know, we can go in there and build hospitals or we can go in there with philanthropy and try and solve these problems, you know, catch people as they fall. Um, but the question is, why are people falling? And, and it really is by and large in our system today, and it doesn't have to be. I think, you know, our economy could be run on other forms of capital, you know, love capital and, and kindness, love your, the name of your company. And, um, but right now it's run largely on financial capital. So really, if we, you know, like we sort of say we want to see the world differently, but as long as we continue buying Coca-Cola or, you know, buying iPhones and, you know, going onto Facebook, well, those companies will continue to get bigger, 
right? So impact investing turned around and said, well, you know, were we really affecting the most powerful lever? You know, is it about helping communities that were in trouble or is it about trying to think of the system as a whole? So impact investing essentially just says, how do we start spending our money and even more so investing our money in the businesses, in the economy that we want to see? So we ask three simple questions. Is it good for people? Is it good for the environment? And is it creating the world we want to live in? And if the answer is no to any of those questions, we say just don't do it. Don't buy it and don't invest in it. And then when we started thinking about the idea of why impact investing, you know, why isn't this sort of a, a general movement around buying stuff? Um, well, I think it's an and, obviously, like, like everything, there, there are multiple ways of, of achieving this. When you look at your purchasing power, you're spending however much money you are a year, right? But for a lot of people, their investments, and particularly at the higher end, at the, um, you know, at the higher wealth stage, you're talking about millions and millions, even billions of dollars. In Australia, our superannuation funds, our pension funds, manage now close to over two billion, two trillion, close to three trillion dollars, right? So this is extraordinary amount of money, right? And they're the ones who are investing that into our future. I mean, that's meant to be our future investments, right? and it's invested in tobacco, and it's invested in coal mines, and it's invested in fossil fuel industries, and it's invested in, in one-use you know, products, you know, uh, one-use plastics and, and other things. So impact investing is just saying, how do we start changing that system? How do we make sure our money is invested in all the businesses that we love, in the economy that we want to do? And that's at the simple level. And then, of course, you can go deeper and start creating a really positive screen. So sort of saying, okay, well, if I have $10,000 to invest, um, you know, whether it's my superannuation fund or whether it's a bank account, am I going to give it to the ANZ or the Commonwealth Bank that they're going to go and lend it to some arsehole business? Or am I going to give it to something like a Bank Australia who says, actually, we will only lend it to businesses that are aligned with the values that you believe in? So when you think of investing, it's quite a broad concept there. Thanks, Danny. Irfan, uh, I want to pick up on you now, like what's, what drives you, what's your mission in the world? And also, particularly, I know you do a lot of community activism, grassroots stuff. Are you thinking about the systemic economy that you're act active in? Sure, totally. So what, uh, what drives me and what's driven me since I was a child is I'm uncomfortable with the existence of inequity around me, injustice around me. I only ever got into two fights in primary school and in high school, and both were when someone else was being teased for something um, uh, unfairly by someone much larger than themselves. That's kind of been the through line of my whole life, is this idea that I can't really enjoy a warm bed um, fully, while I know that there are billions, literally, who are still without a home or without um, a meal even for that day. So this idea that I am feeling personally responsible for the uh, inequities that I um, am witnessing in my, in my world. And then when you spend enough time thinking about that, eventually you come to realize that there are actually some parts of how I'm living that are contributing to that inequity as well. So understanding that very much connects with both of what uh, Helena and, and Danny were talking about. I actually believe very much in localization in, in, in the way that I understand it, as well as in global impact investing as well. So I don't think this is going to be a panel where we're going to have lots of disagreements, rather stitching through um, how these things can actually work together. So I've worked in the areas of racial justice and equality in indigenous community development, uh, gender justice and economic justice is two of the things that I um, very strongly advocate for and speak and teach about as well. Um, and throughout my life, I've worked out 
ways in which these are actually very much interconnected. As Helena touched on earlier, our current economic uh, paradigm is very much based on both sexist and misogynistic and racist uh, ideals, which none of us necessarily had a hand in creating. We weren't there and many of us probably didn't benefit from, from how this was set up either. But we have inherited that history. We've inherited an inherently unjust system that was designed for a couple of things. To concentrate wealth and power in the hands of, of, of a few within a particular society. And then if you look at the you know, the very beginnings of you know neoclassical kind of modern economics, you'll be familiar with um, Wealth of Nations, right? The, the book Wealth of Nations by, uh, the, the name escapes me now, the, Adam Smith, right? So that was designed to increase and build the wealth of individual nations as opposed to other, uh, against other nations. So that's how we ended up with a construct that we do today. So that, by nature, confrontational, adversarial kind of approach isn't suited for the consciousness that we now share as a planet, where one nation, one colony needs to rape the earth and, and steal its resources, practice genocide and slavery to then build their economy uh, and the, the GDP and the, and the value of the currency against others. We have now arrived at a whole new level of consciousness where we understand the fundamental unity and oneness of not only the human family but of all life on earth. Now we need to redesign systems to be able to facilitate that new level of consciousness. So the mental, social, spiritual technology has been advanced but the infrastructure is still failing us. The, the social infrastructure is still failing us which is where systems thinking comes into play. And Danny touched on systems thinking, believe it or not, in what he was talking about which is moving beyond the symptomatic approach to solving problems within society, which is much of how aid and development has been done throughout history and throughout our planet, which is looking at a problem and trying to solve that individual problem, not realizing that that problem is actually a symptom amongst many other symptoms of a deeper underlying issue. So if you look at what is actually the deeper underlying issue why this community doesn't have clean water, you'll realize that that symptom connects with a whole bunch of other symptoms and there's underlying root causes. And that's what systems thinking for social change is really about, which is one of the other things that I teach and talk about and hopefully we can unpack what that actually means in, in a bit more depth today. Thanks, Irfan. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So I, I, like I work in a fairly mainstream economic context. I'm hearing paradigm shift a lot right now. So Biden had a speech recently said trickle down economics is dead. Um, there's deficit money printing's happening. There's huge spending, green, talking about a green new deal, that kind of version. No one seems to be worried about the deficits anymore. Undoing the worst impacts, picking up those who've been left behind by globalization. Is this, are, are, are we feeling hopeful right now? Is this, does it feel like we're, one, is it a move in the right direction? Two, is it genuine? And how, how much further do we need to go? Maybe Helena, if you could pick up there. 
Yeah, I think the very worrying thing is that people on the left in virtually every industrialized country have generally had better values. Their values have been more social, more green, but they have not looked at the structures. They haven't looked at the fundamental systemic structures in the global economy. Therefore, they have continued to deregulate the Microsofts and the Coca-Colas while over-regulating local and national businesses. What they've done is to create a playing field where the giants are actually monopolies that are also subsidized while every other business is squeezed for taxes and over-regulated. So we have this playing field that we really need to step back and look at to understand why things are going so wrong and why Biden's Green Deal is not going to help us. And we ha again, we have to look at how that deregulation has allowed financial institutions, global financial institutions, to create more and more money out of thin air. So we've got trillions of dollars, quadrillions actually, circulating every day in speculation on the value of our currency, the value of the water we buy in the marketplace, the value of our food. So what I'm talking about with localization is that the need for a very big picture to understand the rules of the global economy as opposed to the rules of every other business that is place-based or localized. So we should be very, very careful of buying into Biden's Green New Deal. We should understand that the Green New Deal we need needs to be decentralized, needs to be localized. We also need to recognize that whenever someone invests in our community or town, they are putting money in to get more money out. So is the net result of investment really such a good thing for us? I, I, what we need is investment that really looks at the need for that money to circulate locally. Generally speaking, if someone sitting in New York wants to invest in Malambimbi, you can also be sure that their ability to act wisely, to act with compassion for the people here, for these fabulous trees right here, is virtually nil. Whereas if we had someone investing in Malam who lives in Malam, who knows these trees, who knows all of you, or at least about you and your values, and the land here, the water scarcities, whatever, then we can start talking about a system that is based on the values we're talking about here. But let's not believe that we can sit in New York or Tokyo and understand the realities enough to really behave with compassion and wisdom. The two need to go together. Excellent. I'd love to say a lot more, but I think <laughs> I, I have to. Some, you have to let me know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, Danny, if I could pick you up there. So, a really interesting point there. An investor needs to get more out than they put in. That's how, how I've always understand the textbook def definition of investing. Th is that a fatal flaw in in our current economic system? Do we always need more growth? Then, like, how is is that possible? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a fatal flaw. Like, I actually think that. Um, you know, there's like if you sort of think about how we transitioned from the petrol car to an electric car, and we needed, you know, we needed the Prius, we needed those hybrids to come in and and sort of transition us across. Um, uh, I, I tend to agree uh, with what you just said, which is it is a fundamental flaw, and I agree completely with Helena. I think the system doesn't work. It is an extractive system by nature. So impact investing is better, right? So it's less bad. 
Um, but I don't think it's a solution. I don't think it is the long-term outcome. Um, but I can't see us jumping to, you know, a, a commons-based economy. I can't see us coming to, you know, removing the concept of ownership. Um, you know, IP, should we be owning, you know, ideas? Should we be owning patents? Should we be owning, you know, gene sequences? Um, should we be owning land? Should we be owning forests or rivers? Uh, you know, ultimately, I think that is a fundamental flaw. Um, our current system doesn't allow us to flip, right? I think, you know, unless we want a revolution, which I'm up for if you guys are. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> genuinely. Um, but, you know, we need to, if we're going to do a revolution, we really need to, to get our local community ready for it. Um, we're ready. We're ready, <laughs> yes. Bring it on. Um, but, ge but genuinely, I mean, otherwise we need to find a transition across. And the reason why is because those in power, right, hold power. That's the nature of power, uh, by and large. A few examples in the world where you see people genuinely with that power that give it away, right? Um, so to some extent, I, I do feel a little bit conflicted. It's like playing a game that you know you shouldn't play, but you have to play in order to try and solve some of these problems because they are systemic. Yeah. You know, they're all interrelated. If you want to talk about domestic violence, well, then you can't not talk about mental health. And if you want to talk about mental health, you can't not talk about Absolutely. our addiction to gambling, right, and, and to pokies. And if you want to talk about pokies, well, then you're back at investing, right? You know, um, so, so, you know, it would be nice to be able to break, break that cycle. If you want to talk about obesity or you want to talk about a health system, you go back to our food system, you go back to investing, right? So, yes, I think that we do need to break, somehow break this system um, at, at the fundamental level. Uh, until then, at least let's use the power we do have to move it closer towards what we want until we're all ready to, to actually... There's this beautiful story, The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. I don't know if anyone's read it or not by, by this uh, author, Ursula Le Guin, who, who died recently. And it just talks about our society, which is a beautiful... I mean, look how... This is unbelievable. Like, we live so, such a magnificent life here, right, compared to so many around the world. This is idyllic. But we live basically on the blood and sweat and pain of others, right, ultimately. And, um, and this story asks the question of can we change that deal or do we have to actually walk away and start again? Um, and we contemplate that all the time. Great. I'm going to ping that question over to Irfan. Like, when, when, I, when I went studied economics at university, when I re identified what the features of capitalism were, I was shocked that I hadn't realised that they were features. I just thought that's how you, you just had property rights. That was a natural way humans organised things. There was money. That's how we did things. So I'm wondering, given you think a lot about this systemic thisting, do you see any particular leverage points in the system where we can start pushing towards the change that we need? Yeah, totally. Um, I will answer that. And I wanted to just quickly touch on a couple of things that were raised earlier. I want to say two things that you probably wouldn't expect me to say, which is um, I don't believe in revolutionary change like that. I believe in organic change, which is how ecosystems normally change. And we are an ecosystem. Malambimbi is one. Australia is one. Our planet is one. And ecosystems, though they have periods of rapid change, like bamboo might not grow for 10 years, right? It's still, it's dormant while it's spreading its roots. And then all of a sudden there's a shoot of, of growth and it grows 10 meters in a, in a year. These, there are these periods of fast change, but by and large, change happens organically, naturally, slowly, according to the capacity of that particular ecosystem. So as much as we want a revolution, because in our hearts and in our minds, we can see the world that we want to be creating, we can't get there until we can look right what, where we are, 
how we got to where we are, like look at our history, and then look at the next step we have to actually take. And part of that is a couple of words that came up earlier. Localization is something I do believe in in many regards of the, well, of the word. But decentralization, which Helena also touched upon, what does that actually mean? The other thing I'm going to say, which you might think that wouldn't come out of the mouth of Erefan, is that I do believe that interest uh, should and can be earned. Right? The problem isn't money. This idea that money is the root of all evil is something we've been sold from forever because most of us haven't had money. We've grown up without it, for example. And the people who have had lots of it have done very mean things. The inequitable concentration and, and violent use of masses of money is the root of all evil. Right? It's the concentration of that wealth. Money is the blood that flows through a life form and keeps it alive. Money is the water that travels the entire planet and facilitates life. Money is the sap that flows through a tree and, and gives sugars to wherever they need to be. So money is not the evil. It's the way in which we have designed a system that allows for the further concentration of that money within the hands of certain people. So that concept of interest, which should be a fair and equal concept for everyone to be able to enjoy, means a person who's a billionaire becomes a trillionaire much faster than a person who has only got $10,000 to invest and then wanting to keep up with that. So these, these concepts sometimes aren't necessarily flawed until you look at what, what actually is flawed, which is the un inequitable concentration of wealth that we need to do, uh, address. So that, that's where decentralization comes in. And the decentralization of our banking system is part of this evolutionary process, right? So the, the fact that we've got reserve banks that can print off however much money they want um, per, per country, Right, And then in order to maintain the value of that particular currency, they need to boost GDP. And Helena talks very eloquently on this issue that cancer boosts GDP, earthquakes boost GDP. Every terrible thing that happens to society boosts GDP. And the government doesn't care because that just means more economic activity, which means at the value of the Australian dollar you know, maintains some sort of relative power against the US dollar and the UK dollar, which is why we do terrible things to the planet, just to boost our GDP and the value of our currency. So here's when there is one clear point of distinction between um, our future visions for the world. I do believe in localization with regards to what you eat, what you wear, uh, how far you travel, how far your food travels to get to you, um, all these types of things. But the issue of currency is something that I think uh, most of us haven't really had the time or the, the pleasure, the, the, the privilege to really think about. In an ecosystem, there are several key currencies, right? Water sunlight, you know, air, oxygen in the, in the body, there's blood. If every organ within your body used a different kind of currency, right, that would cause disunity and disharmony within that system. And much of the horrors that we have seen, the wars, the wars for resources and that type of stuff has been because each currency, each country has tried to boost their own currency against another. If we had a single base level currency where everybody could trade, then we wouldn't be able to exploit other nations with unfair working conditions and $4 an hour or $3 an hour working rates because our British pound is worth more than their rupee. That type of stuff. Thank you. <laughs> right? Because that's how we are able to maintain these situations where someone can get a t-shirt made for $2 and that we pay $20 for here because I get paid $20 an hour, that person gets paid 20 cents an hour because of these discrepancies. So localization, absolutely. Decentralization, yes. And addressing power dynamics and the concentration of wealth and power and whatever systems that facilitate that concentration we need to dismantle. Um, capitalism's got its own issues to begin with. It already needs improvement. Democracy, as it stands, needs, needs its own improvements and or replacement. When you marry those two together, it becomes a highly toxic uh, cocktail where concentration of wealth and power through capital and its accumulation can then influence your democracy to then allow for this positive feedback loop that allows for even more accumulation of wealth, which is what Helena was touching on earlier as well. So that's the feedback loop that we need to disrupt so we can actually get to a place where our global 
family can send money from one part of the world to the other without having to go through three or four banks and pay 20% you know, as a remittance, uh, as, a, as a fee for a transfer of wealth, for example. It's when large sums of money, when billions of dollars or trillions of dollars can be sent from one part of the world to the other because uh, they changed their, their minimum wage in Bangladesh, so we're going to move to Thailand. That's economic violence. That's when the concentration of energy can actually cause harm in society. And we've got to undo that sort of system and I'm beginning imagining how we can do that. Helena was yeah, just, Helena just, just biting, to jumping to get in, <laughs> chomping to get I'm in. I'm dying to get in. Tell me apart, Helena. Because I would argue that money is not synonymous with the sap that flows through a tree or the water that circulates the planet. What I would argue is I agree with you uh, from that I don't think money per se is the problem. I don't even think interest per se is the problem. I don't think ownership per se is the problem, but all of this needs to be subsumed under social, ecological, spiritual values. And in order for that to happen, and in order for us to understand the reality of life, which is infinite diversity, every single plant, every single cell, every single individual is unique. We evolved as human beings in the family of life. That's why we have different races, why we have different cultures, why we have different languages. If we want to maintain life on Earth, we have to respect the fundamental principle of life, which is diversity. Now, how do we do that if we allow some kind of monetary system and think that it is like the flow of, of life, the flow of water, the air, and the movement of the stars? we are going to end up creating a global structure that cannot respect that diversity. So where we are now, there are many things that need to happen, including investment, including a global movement for the peoples of the world to work together. We need global collaboration. We need global types of investment, but they need to be geared towards that decentralization or localization. In a certain context, I don't see those words as very separate, but why local is more important for me is that all indigenous people and all the peoples of this world had a local identity, had a local place-based system and we're not talking about moving back into some kind of wall building. It never was in the indigenous world either that there were big walls around my local versus your local. It was a flow. It was a connection. There was even global trade. So it's not about, as I say, it's not about eliminating trade. It's not about eliminating interest or ownership. There was a certain type of ownership even in those cultures that managed to survive for thousands of years, thousands upon thousands of years. So I also just quickly want to say that I feel so privileged because I discovered a long time ago that if we in the industrialized world start moving towards the most important shift of all, which is to shift the food economy, if we start doing that right now in Malambimbi, I've helped to start all the farmers markets here and in many other places of the world, and not just farmers markets, but community supported agriculture. It's about people coming together across the most important industry of all. I don't even want to call it an industry because it's a, it's a work of love, it's a work of care when it works properly. But the industrial global food system is the biggest contributor to emissions, to the mountains of plastic, to the toxic pollution that lies behind cancer, and to the junk food that lies behind heart disease and diabetes, obesity. 
Shifting the food economy is so fundamental. I want to ask every one of you to come away from here to organize a local food feast. That can be two people on Zoom. If your friend in England is in COVID lockdown, have a meal where you discuss the importance of trying to source your food locally. Create a meal that is primarily local food, no fundamentalism, just an attempt to be conscious about bringing back those local food economies. We're talking here about this big system. Once we start creating the local food systems, we start seeing amazing win-win-win. Less packaging, less transport, more community, biodiversity on the land. The local market, the local shop that buys from local farmers wants diversity. The global agribusiness is all about monoculture, larger and larger quantities. So in terms of restoring the health to our water, to our soils, to our bodies, and to our communities, the local food movement is the most central, the most important. And I don't want to be told that that's my personal interest. I've been sitting with economists for 40 years trying to make this case. And they often say to me, oh, Helen, I wouldn't push my own personal interest. A friend of mine said some years ago when I was complaining about this, well, next time you have a two-day meeting, don't feed them. And if they complain, you say, well, I didn't want to impose my personal interest on you. So thank you for listening. Help to organize a local food feed. Thank you. We are, this is uh, Renew Fest, So there you go. That was part one of Is Economics Fundamentally Broken? Don't forget, we'll be back with our regular format of Comedian versus Economist on February the 2nd. Uh, in the meantime, coming up next week, we have part two of this discussion. So if you've enjoyed this week, make sure you tune in next week. Otherwise, I look forward to your company again on Comedian versus Economist in the new year. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.